For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Friday Q&A today. Here are the questions we're going to cover. I almost doubled my income, saving a bunch of money. What do I do with the difference now? Number two, my parents don't have much money, just a little bit of home equity. How do we figure out a retirement plan for them? Number three, is insurance a good investment? Number four, how do I figure out an appropriate withdrawal strategy to leave a certain amount of money behind? Number five, 26 years old, make a bunch of money but don't know what to do. Is it okay just to keep money in cash or do I need to have it invested? Next, how do I allocate and diversify my bond portfolio? Should I pay extra on my mortgage in a lump sum or in a little bit over time? And if we have time, how do I get out of credit card debt? Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets and I'm your host. Today is Friday, November 7, 2014. It's Friday, time for Q&A. Those are the eight questions I've got lined up. Of course, the question is, will we get even past number one or number two? (laughs) I really don't even know. This is episode 98 of the show. I hope you enjoy. So you all responded to my... Was it a plea? I'm not sure if it was a plea or my request for more questions last week. So I had a bunch of questions sent in, which is awesome. I've got those eight that I mentioned in the intro lined up here, ready to go. I'm not sure how many I'm going to get through. I'm going to try to actually answer them a little bit more quickly than sometimes, and I'm going to linger on a few different points. So as just a quick up front, uh, I may in some of these questions answer them in a more cursory manner or just pick on a couple of the topics that seem uh, pertinent and interesting to me rather than trying to give give such a detailed, exhaustive answer for each of these. So I hope you enjoy. I'm going to shoot for right about an hour, and when I get to an hour, I'll finish whatever question I'm on, and I will flip the recorder off. So we're going to keep today to an hour, and then I'll keep the, sh- the questions uh, for the for future shows lined up in, in, in the backlog. Uh, real quick, before I get started on the questions, I want to just give you a quick heads up since I forgot to do it last Friday. I've been interviewed over the last two weeks on two different podcasts, and both of those are now out. I will put links in today's show. And then also tomorrow, I'll put out a blog post on the blog for part two of my interview with Eric Hemingway on the Family Adventure podcast. We talk about, talked about strategies for saving, uh, saving money toward things like family adventure and long-term travel. Uh, and then also, I was interviewed by Rob Berger on his Dole Roller podcast. And that show was a lot about the business of financial planning, what it's actually like from a business side. And he got a, some personal details out about me. Uh, he got the he got some of those things from me. So I hope you enjoy that and check those out. Uh, links in today's show and go ahead and check those 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 shows out uh, if, if you are interested in that. Uh, also next week, 
I'm going to be running through a few different things next week. I'll, I'll share that schedule with you at the end of the show. So first off, we're going to begin with a voicemail question. And if you would like me to answer your voicemail questions, I prefer voicemail questions because it helps the audience to hear your voice. I really like those. So I will give priority to a good question asked in voicemail versus a question that was emailed to me. But let's kick it off with a question here from Joel. Hey, Joshua, excellent work. This is the best financial podcast out there. You're a gifted thinker and a talented communicator. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Need your advice. Brainstorming on how to manage a big jump in income. This year we went from 100000 to 190000 from my promotion and my wife's second job. Our living expenses are 30000 thanks to a paid-off house, and we give to many causes and to our local church for a total of twenty-five k. We maxed out my 401k and started an individual 401k for her. She's an independent contractor on one of her two jobs, making 14k. We also maxed out an HSA for 6000 Our assets are 250 k in mutual funds with maybe 10% of it in company stocks. Um, home is worth 160 k No debts, no kids for college. We need ideas on where else to invest. It leaves us around 500k a month. Should we put it all into taxable accounts and buy more mutual funds with careful asset allocation and with uh, momentum upgrading? I would expect 10% return. Or should we buy rental properties? I manage a friend's rental house and I'm a great handyman. Also, we could upgrade to another home and build equity and get a mortgage deduction. But one problem in Texas is high property tax. So we need ideas. Ultimately, our goal is semi-retirement in 5 to 10 years by our late 40s or early 50s so that we could volunteer for different causes and um, spend time traveling. Thanks, Joshua. Bye-bye. What a cool question, huh? How exciting to be in that position. What an awesome opportunity to be making almost 200000 bucks a year, and you only need about $30,000 to live on, and then basically to almost practically double your income. That is awesome. So, Joel, what, uh, 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 what an exciting, uh, exciting situation to be in. I've got a few thoughts for you, and I'll just tell you kind of how I would think about it, uh, but I hope you find a few of these things uh, helpful. First of all, a couple of bits of info for you as far as that I picked up in his voicemail. Uh, two terms you may not be familiar with. He mentioned choosing a portfolio of mutual funds using momentum upgrading. So that would... T- Uh, indicate to me that he is using a momentum investing strategy. And momentum investing is basically you try to ride the macro wave. So you try to get out when things are going down and get in when things are going up. But you're not trying to buy it. You're not trying to time it perfectly. You're trying to essentially ride the trend. And since he used the term upgrading, to the best of my knowledge, I could be mistaken about that. But I think that term is primarily uh, uh, associated with one newsletter. I think it's called called uh, the No Load Fundex newsletter, something like that. Uh, I don't remember. That might be the proper name for it. Uh, but if you're interested in that, uh, my library carries that newsletter. I've read it. I read it off and on every now and then. But that's probably what he is doing for his investment strategy. It's kind of an interesting strategy. It's got uh, there's compelling sales copy on it, and I know many people who have done well with it. And it's an interesting newsletter. I like to read it. And basically, the idea is you buy or sell uh, certain no load mutual funds, trying to ride the 
the general trend of the market. And so in this newsletter they'll publish every month, they'll publish the 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 funds that are a buy, the funds that are a hold, and the funds that are a sell. And so it's an interesting, interesting newsletter, interesting strategy. Uh, so that's what he probably is referring to at, when he mentions the two key words are momentum and upgrading. So the other thing is he mentioned he's got about 500000 a month. My guess is that he meant 5000 a month. So that would be about right. Uh, if you were to run his expenses, just to give you an update on the numbers, if you were to say, okay, $190,000, and let's ignore tax for a moment, let's just take out expenses, Take out thirty thousand bucks of a paid for house. Take out he says his max is four hundred one k. So let's just put eighteen thousand bucks in there. Uh, it's just under that. So eighteen thousand for his four hundred one k. Says his wife makes fourteen thousand and is putting that into an individual four hundred one k. So let's just assume she puts all of her money in there. Six thousand for the HSA and then the um, the twenty five thousand dollars of of give of money given away. So that leaves us with an out, about ninety seven thousand dollars. So if what I, my guess is that he meant about five thousand a month, which would be six thousand, and he's paying you know thirty grand in a year of taxes, uh, thirty seven thousand maybe in my math to, of of employment taxes and income taxes. So so the question is primarily basically what do we do with five thousand bucks a month when we when we need only thirty thousand dollars to live on and we're making one hundred ninety. What a cool, cool scenario to be in. So first thing I would do in this situation is I would just run some numbers. And he already has $250,000 in mutual funds and a house that's worth $160,000. But if we just quickly run uh, $30,000 and divide that into 190, we wind up with basically a 16% uh, expenses versus uh, income ratio. So essentially, he's able to save about 85% of his income. Now, it's not going to be quite that high because we've got to take employment taxes out, which is going to be 7.5%. Uh, and then we also have to take out income taxes. But he's basically could could he's north of seventy five percent of a savings ratio. So we know from the charts behind um, behind this ratio that he says our primary goal is semi retirement in five to ten years in our late forties or early fifties. We know that as long as we can keep up that household income of one hundred ninety thousand, even if we didn't have any money, we could be financially independent in five to ten years. So uh, I love situations like this. It's exciting. So what would I do? Well. You mentioned a couple of key phrases that, to me, I think make it fair, make your answer fairly clear. Um, you said I'm pretty handy, and I manage a friend's uh, a friend's rental house, and I put all this money into 401ks and things like that. Now you will have to test uh, this, but if if it were me, I would go in the direction of real estate. I really would. Uh, now, advantages and disadvantages. Why? Well, first of all, you said you're pretty handy, and you said you're going to be looking for some kind of you know semi-retirement. So, managing a portfolio of real estate and a portfolio of rental houses, in my mind, that is an awesome semi-retirement pursuit. And if you're fairly handy, you may enjoy working on those. You may enjoy that as a creative outlet or uh, uh, you know an opportunity to do some work. And if you've had good experience managing your friends, you're comfortable with it. And this would be a great place to focus some of your focus some of your time and attention. The advantage that I would see with going in that direction would be uh, it's going to move you out of having all of your assets and paper assets. So I'm not particularly concerned about having only a well diversified. Uh, uh, 
you know, portfolio of mutual funds, but it does expose you to certain risks. So you're still exposed to market risks. You're still exposed to currency risks, assuming that all of your mutual funds are denominated in dollars. And also with the heavy focus on retirement accounts, you're exposed to extra task tax risks that are sitting there. And I think that's a good place to start. But if you've got this amount of, uh, of money that you're expecting to have coming in, then I would start to consider about can I hedge against some of those risks? And if you don't mind investing in real estate uh, as far as the work involved, something like that, to me, that would be uh, an awesome way to go. The cool thing about it is you're going to have so much cash flow. Let's say that you've got, let's say my numbers are right and what you meant was 5000 bucks a month. And that gives you $60,000 a year to invest. Think about, let's say you work for another five years, just buy one property each, each year for the next five years. Uh, if you buy one property for each year for the next five years, uh, it's up to you. If, you. if you have a strong conviction of a reason to do it debt-free, that would be fine. At the moment, I would probably put a mortgage on it. And with $60,000 of excess cash flow, you would be able to, uh, to finance that property Fairly easily, you would have an, and still have uh, a really strong cash cushion uh, underneath you. And with sixty thousand bucks a year to invest with your down payment, and then as as surplus uh, or reserves to handle um, vacancies, things you know, repairs, things like that. You, and you should, and if, assuming if your job is the type that allows you the time where you could go and do that, I would feel really good about that. You're still going to be putting. Let's see, let's just call it. 30, let's call it $40,000 a year into 401ks. You didn't mention uh, Roth IRAs. You're going to be over the, you're, you're going to be over the limit at 190, uh, depending on how you work the income from your wife's contracting business. So you might be able to go ahead and participate in Roth IRAs, which would be probably the simplest account for you to go ahead and also fund, but you're quickly getting out of the easy, uh, you're getting out of the easy tax deferred accounts. Um, once you've taken care of 401k, self-directed 401k for your wife, uh, IRAs, HSAs, those are the easy ones. Then you got to get into um, individual plans. You would have to get into the world of non-qualified deferred comp. Uh, it just gets more more complicated. So to me, I mean, just those two things you said, manage a friend's rental house and I'm a great handyman, I would consider you know, buy a house a year uh, for the next five years, maybe two if you're good at it. Uh, put mortgages on them. Let the tenants pay the mortgages. Keep a bunch of cash and reserves, and then that gives you all the options in the world five years from now in, in semi-retirement. The only other thought I would have is that you mentioned giving a large amount of money uh, to your church and to, ch- and to uh, uh, causes that you feel strongly about. And you also mentioned in that scenario, you mentioned we would go and we would volunteer. So my question would be this. Do you see a need in something locally that you could uh, invest your money into that would really make an impact from the perspective of really helping people locally? So clearly, you are very concerned. You're concerned about charity and helping those around you. I think sometimes some of the things I think a lot about personally for me is how can I build a business that has a dual mandate that is kind of, I guess, the term that we've come up with for this would be social entrepreneurship, where we're working to solve a need that we have in the community 
uh, uh, a need that we have in the community uh, that is uh, uh, in addition to where we're trying to make money, but we're also trying to make a difference for this specific need in the community. And could you use some of your money and funnel it into something like that, knowing that it's not necessarily going to be the most profitable scenario, but that it's going to take care of you from an excellent perspective? Give that some thought. Now, I don't know what your job is. Maybe you're able to do that type of thing in your job successfully, but I'll give you an idea. Uh, I'm, I, I heard of a story in the past. Uh, I don't. I heard of a story, and this group, this business person, and a group of business per- people, they had a scenario where they started landscaping jobs in the in in the inner city, uh, landscaping uh, businesses in the inner city, and these men would work on these businesses every Saturday. And what they would do is they had this landscaping business, and they would go in and they would recruit teenagers in the inner city to work with them in their landscaping business, and they would pay excellent wages, and they did this every single Saturday. But basically, the goal was to have an opportunity to pay um, inner-city youth, uh, pay them for hard work, and to teach them job skills and business schools skills from the perspective of uh, from the perspective of uh, uh, of work of hard work, and that idea really inspired me. Because I thought that is that is a really valuable scenario. If you could go and if, if there's a, a neighborhood nearby where you see a need like that, that you can go ahead and uh, pay people a wage so that so that they actually have an opportunity to work. There's something maybe better and more valuable than retail. Uh, then they have an opportunity to do hard work. They can you can teach them business skills. Could you invest in something like that? If these numbers are accurate and you're north of a 75% savings rate, there's no possible way that you're going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to be poor. You're going to be financially independent. So you're going to hit that. You're going to hit that goal. So now that gives you the financial base where you can say, what impact do I really want to make on the world? How do I want to allocate this capital? And what's the best way to allocate it? You know, again, for me, I don't, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's not landscaping business, working Saturdays with with people like that. But maybe it's maybe there's some business that you can take some of this wonderful excess income that you have and invest it in a way that's not just a straight charitable contribution, but you can go ahead and use a business as a launching platform to help some to help in some need that you see locally. Uh, I would love to see you consider investing in something like that. And that gives you multitude of advantages because, again, assuming you have the time, you may not have the time depending on how constricting your your job is. But what I would look for is think then you can you can add on your social uh, your social benefit that you're trying to accomplish with your charitable giving and with your volunteering and with your travel, you're, you can complement that with your uh, business benefit that if you bu- if you start a business like that and if you can find an idea, the goal should be to make a profit. But if it uh, – let's say that you need to invest into infrastructure, well, that investment into infrastructure may help you to offset your, your increase in income. Let's say that you have a business that you design it and it's going to be profitable, but there's a heavy investment in infrastructure in the first few years, well, now those losses, if you structure it appropriately, those losses can help you to discount uh, against your income, uh, the increases in your income right now over the next few years. Then you can transition over 
to that new business. And then at that point in time, hopefully the business is more profitable. Now you transition away from the job that you have that maybe you don't love doing so much. And then you're able now to, uh, to, to have a business that's providing you a living wage, also providing you social benefit. And then along the way, you can still do exactly as your wife has done with running her own uh, consulting company, contracting company, and an individual 401k. You can go ahead and use that within the business for the benefits of tax deferral. So, And there's no reason why you can't do one or all of those ideas. So you may choose that if you've got 60000 of cash flow, again, you're investing heavily already into a quality portfolio of mutual funds. That gives you a tremendous amount of exposure. You clearly have done your research and, and have chosen your momentum investing strategy. So that gives you uh, exposure. You're going assuming your 10% per, uh, per year returns are there. You're going to be wealthy. So build the lifestyle that that you wish to build. Uh, as far as the upgrade to another home, man, I don't know. Do you want one? Uh, you can obviously afford it if you want to upgrade. So there's if if you and your wife would like to have a fancier house for some reason, then go for it. And if you need to adjust your living situation, make sure that you are where you want to be for the long term or that you're planning where you want to be for the long term. So you mentioned Texas. If you're living in Texas and that's where you want to be, you know, build it. That would, you know, build the real estate empire if, if valuations are good near you. But plan that long-term lifestyle. What I love about getting to this point and and uh, at least just the people I've worked with, what I've learned is that it kind of gives you that ability to dream a little bit. And then you get out of this idea of everything depends upon the dollars and you can focus on how do I build the lifestyle and make the impact that I want to make in my community. So, Man, that is exciting. <laughs> I'm so thrilled that, that, that you're listening uh, to the show. I hope some of those ideas would, would be helpful. I would love to see you, and I'd love to see other people in the audience. This is a big deal to me. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do this, but I would love to see a lot of us who have a little bit of business experience stop just giving money and go start creating and solving problems that we have in our community. And use the money that you have. Use that money. And <laughs> you said you give to your church, so I'll quote scripture on you. The scripture says, use this unrighteous money to buy for yourself friends. That's the verse. Go check it out. That's what I would say. So uh, use the money and invest it for something that's going to last and that's going to make a difference. And much as I love mutual funds, and hey, that's cool, but put that the only point of the money is to put it to 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 use and i would consider it me personally now you may not but i would consider it an abject failure of my life if i arrived at the end of my life with millions of dollars that i should have been responsible to allocate better and to invest now for something that is going to last uh, and so you may you may need to continue investing get the 401k's and that the thing the real estate may be, bring an opportunity so let's say that you're pretty handy now uh, using my inner city youth example. You can bring in some some people and you can hire them to work on your houses. That gives you an opportunity to mentor them and, and build some relationships and help them to build some employment skills. Uh, I would consider that uh, in, in some of those strategies. Uh, hopefully that'll help you. Help you. But uh, what I was saying about, I, I would just, I would consider it a total failure to, to die rich. Um, so figure out what that number is. And if you need 30,000 bucks, Set that aside, and, and, and maybe you account for that with the mutual funds and a little bit of real estate, but then consider investing that money for something that really matters to you. I uh, hope that's helpful. Thanks for the question.
Next question is an email from Justin. Justin says, my parents are facing retirement soon, and they haven't really put much of anything away. They have $150,000 of equity in their current home and Social Security to rely on. My father is 60, and my mom is 55. They have time to sock away some money, but they aren't really high-income earners. They want to live a job... a job-free retirement, so no part-time work. They are weighing the option of living in Texas, which would be closer to family, versus Louisiana, which would be closer to friends and also a big savings on property tax. Interesting. <laughs> That's two two questions in a row that talk about property taxes in Texas. Uh, they're into gardening, fishing, hunting, woodwork, etc. What should I recommend that they do? Now, Justin, this is an, an interesting question, and I was glad to get this one because this describes a massive portion of our population fits into this scenario. 60 and 55, baby boomers, uh, money in their equity in their house and Social Security, but not really any other money. And so I'm going to give you an, a few answers. Some of it you'll like, some of it you won't like. Uh, but the advantage of me doing a podcast is that I can be blunt. And uh, I'm going to be blunt, but I'm using it also clearly as a, as, a, as a scenario to teach other people. But there are some realities of this, and I could be mistaken in any of the details uh, because of more, more info that you have. So take it with a grain of salt, but I'm going to be blunt. Your parents are, are not going to be able to retire. Um, they're, they're, I don't think unless the this, – A, this question is not coming from them. It's coming from you, which means that you're observing and, and you're concerned, but they're probably not concerned. But there's some things in here that give me that, give me that uh, information. So how do I know they're not going to be able to retire? Well, number one, they don't have any money other than the equity in their home. So they have a little bit of, I would guess, forced savings, but they don't have any money. So unless they – you know, had a stroke of bad luck, maybe an illness, you know, business loss, bankruptcy, death of a family member, they were caring for parents, something like that, where they were uh, careful savers previously. They're not savers, and savers really are not going to be able to be financially independent. And so thankfully, they've got the money and the equity in their house, but they're not going to be able to retire because they're not going to be able to adjust their income unless over the next 10 years they can actually proactively adjust their expenses. Excuse me, I meant to say expenses. Unless they can adjust their expenses down and create a difference between what they're, what they're earning now and what they're spending, there's no, there's no possible way for them to retire. And it's really tough for people who are 60 and 55 years old for them to change a lifetime of habits. Again, the exception to this would be if they had a stroke of bad luck uh, or just something really unfortunate happened to them. But if they don't have any money, which they don't, they just have a little bit of equity in their house and Social Security, they're not going to be able to change anything. Uh, most of the time, it would be a rare 60-year-old uh, male and 55-year-old female that would be uh, able to, to, to change. Uh, second thing that gives me that indication is it says they want to live a job-free retirement. Well, I've never met somebody, uh, I've rarely met somebody who wants to live a job-free retirement who's in, who's ju- who doesn't have any money, who hasn't planned for it, that they're really ever going to be able to do it. There's a reason why you see more and more old people uh, working, and, and you see this all over the place in our society. It's because... The people who had the the ability and the, and they saved earlier in life, then they they were already financially independent and they're not working. 
I'm, I'm getting mixed up here. They were already financially independent uh, because of their diligence and frugality. And so they don't wind up at the age of 60 still wanting to, to, to not be working. Either they're early retirees and they've figured out a lifestyle that works for them and they, they, they already fixed it um, or they'll never retire. And your parents are going to be in the probably never retire in the in that sense scenario. Now, the, the final problem is that – and here, here's the issue with that. It doesn't really matter what they want to do as far as whether they want to work or not. Um, they're going to deal with what they can do. So – uh, so I'm going to give you my financial planner answer, but the majority of people who are in this situation will just simply – they'll spend the $150,000. They'll buy another house. They may have it mortgage-free, and then they'll hope to live on Social Security, and they'll work some side jobs. Many people go ahead and spend the $150,000, and what will happen is often there will be a medical situation later at the end of life, which 10, 15, 20 years down the road forces the sale of the house to get the money out of that to pay for the medical situation. Situation. So, uh, I'm going to give the answers to it, but I did just want to do. Just want to start with from that perspective. Is that bluntly it, a fact pattern like you just presented? There's not a lot of hope for actual retirement, but that doesn't mean that you can't do certain things. So here's here's what you can do. Um, there there are three problems in their scenario that they got to fix. Number one, what are they going to live on? How much? Number two, what are they going to live on after one of them dies? And then number three, what are they going to live on when one of them needs medical care? Because these are the big factors in retirement planning that most people don't think about. Um, I can't actually plan. If if the $150,000 of equity is all we have, that's almost no money to work from to actually build a scenario and build a lifestyle. The $150,000 would be gone in one long-term care event. I mean, uh, I don't know what costs are in Texas, but across the nation, costs for long-term care average somewhere about $200 a day. $200 a day comes out to about $6,000 a month. And ignoring any interest uh, interest calculations, $150,000 equals 25 months of long-term care. And so... One, you know, your dad has a stroke, um, your mom has a stroke, something like that, early onset dementia or Alzheimer's, which is what I worked with with my um, grandfather or something like that. That $150,000 can be gone in no time. Plus, more importantly, if that's the only savings that they have, you still have to look at – you still have to look at the the balance of like how are they going to live their lives. So if they need a car, what are they going to pay for the car? How are they going to keep a a buffer account? They're going to want to spend some money on uh, your dad's going to want to buy a new gun or, or a new bass boat or something like that. So they're always going to be spending the money. So in essence, in my mind, I kind of set the hundred and fifty thousand dollars aside because that hundred and fifty thousand dollars is just barely enough of a buffer account. And here's here's the problem with what they're facing: uh, they're planning to live on Social Security. But uh, Social Security is not going to replace 100% of their income. It's going to replace a much lower percentage. But given the fact if they don't have any other savings, they can't live on that lower percentage. Now, they may move to Texas, may move to Louisiana, and then they could figure out how to live on it. But until they can actually prove they can live on it, like they, they can't really live on it. Um, and then the bigger problem is that if even if they could figure out their budget uh, based upon the Social Security. So let's say their Social Security between them is going to be $2,500 a month between the two of them. You said they're relatively low income earners, so I don't know what the actual number is, but pull the statements and look at it. Even if they can live on the $2,500 a month, what happens when dad dies? He's five years older, and statistically, he's going to die at a sooner at a, at a younger age. So 
um, what happens when he dies? Well, now all of a sudden, now mom has dropped either his original benefit uh, or her own benefit if that amount number is higher, depending on what benefit she's pooling on. And that's going to be less than the $2,500, so they're going to have to completely renegotiate everything. So I'm being a real downer with the answer to this question, but they've got, they've got to face reality. They're not going to be able to retire. Now, what should they do then? Well, first of all, they've got to actually run some numbers on their situation and calculate what their actual life expectancy is. By the way, I'm going to interrupt myself again. Uh, it's not just me saying this. If you go and you look at what the AARP um, is doing, you will see a dramatic change in their messaging from the idea, the traditional idea of retirement, to now they're doing life reimagined and retirement reimagined. And that includes some kind of part-time work. And that's, in my opinion, that's probably a good thing. Uh, that, that is a good thing. And I'll get to kind of how I would fix this is where I'm going. But this is the reality that so many people in this generation face. And the idea that I'm going to be able to live just on Social Security and be able to make that work, it just simply doesn't really work. Uh, and it especially doesn't work if one spouse dies. And that's what you got to plan on. So you got to they need to actually understand what their life expectancy is. I, in my experience, very few uh, people um, actually have a, 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 an accurate understanding of what their life expectancy is. So if I just simply use a simple Social Security S, uh, administration calculator, uh, and I did this, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, but uh, for a 60-year-old male today, 60-year-old male on average can expect to live an additional 23 and a half years to the age of 83 and a half. And your mom at 55 years old today can expect to live another 30 years to the age of 85 and a half. Now, that's the average which means that they may die sooner or they may die later, hopefully later. Uh, you know, Again, all my grandparents died in their mid-90s, and my grandmother just celebrated her 100th birthday, so hopefully later. But what that means is that if they're going to try to live on Social Security and on the $150,000, in, in reference to a 30-year retirement, the $150,000 is a relatively meaningless number. Uh, relatively speaking. Now, I'll, I'll cash the check if you send me $150,000. I'm being a little bit extreme just to make the point, but it's a relatively meaningless number, especially when you take into account the fact that they're a couple. And so, therefore, um, you know, your dad, he needs to make sure that he's taking care of your mom. And your mom, they need to plan for what happens if one of them is dead. That's a big deal. And they're past the age where insurance is as easy as, as, a, as a solution as at a, younger, as at a younger age. So what would I do? Well, number one, the best investment that they can make right now is in Social Security. Uh, so they should, they and you should spend some serious time considering how to create a brilliant Social Security strategy. And let me give you some numbers. Okay. They don't have any they don't have any investments. They they have a house and they may or may not I'll get to that in just a second. But they have they don't have any numbers. They haven't they have income. And so what they need to do is they need to get that social security income as high as possible. So here would be some simple numbers and I've got all kinds of shows plan on social security. It's far too complicated for me to do in a Friday Q&A show. But here's, 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 here are the numbers, and you need to be aware of these. So let's assume that we just use a middle-of-the-road social security recipient, average income, middle-of-the-road, and assume that their full retirement age is 66 years old and that their monthly benefit at that point in time would be $2,180 uh, a month of benefit. $2,180 a month. If your dad is 60 and he has his eye on not working in retirement, he may be thinking, hey, at 62, I can take that retirement income. If he takes, if that example recipient were to take their retirement, their Social Security income at 62, that amount would be $1,623 per month. 
So we go from $2,180 a month to $1,623 per month. So that would be a, let's see, uh, uh, seven, uh, 26% decrease. 16, 23, 21, 80. Yeah, so that would be a 26% decrease in their benefit just by taking it early. That is a massive number. And here's the important thing about that. That number is a guaranteed indexed for inflation number. So that reduction of benefit from 2180 down to 1623, that reduction of benefit, that's a $557 per month reduction of benefit. Pretend we were using the 4% rule that we often refer to on the show. Multiply that times 300. That would be the equivalent of $167,000 in an investment portfolio in value but would actually be more than that because that's a guaranteed lifetime annuity that is indexed with inflation that's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, which is a whole other uh, total joke. But for, in their situation, we've got, to, we've got to count on that. So that is a, that's, a, that's worth $167,000 in an investment account plus. I would give it a lot higher because if you were to go out and buy a commercial annuity that was going to provide that monthly income, it's, worth, it's going to cost you more than $167,000. That's a huge benefit. Now, let's say that we can go to age 70. So at age 70, and they, he keeps working, and he, and he retires at 70 according to Social Security and, and takes his income, that monthly amount is $2,880 per month. So that's uh, so we went up from age 62 to 70 from 1623 to $2,880 per month. So $2,880 per month um, is $1,257 per month more than at age 62. The important thing why he needs to – your dad especially because he's older needs to focus on this. And, and I don't know which earnings record is higher. Uh, in many couples uh, of this age, the husband's earnings record, uh, earnings record will be higher. And so his amount will be the higher. So we'll usually judge based upon that. But the reason why that's a big deal – is because that's the benefit that's ultimately indexed for inflation after they retire, and that's the benefit upon which the spousal benefit when he dies is based. So if we could get it up to that $3,000 per month, now we're at a scenario where there's a lot more wiggle room than at $1,623 per month. So uh, it's, a, it's a huge deal. And what's the value of that? If we if we take that monthly difference between so we did two thousand eight hundred and eighty minus sixteen twenty three, so that equals twelve hundred and fifty seven dollars. Just using uh, three hundred times that, that's an investment. That's equal to it's actually much more than this, but that's equal to an investment account worth three hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars. So the best investment they can possibly make is not to retire. And just simply to keep working, keep contributing to Social Security, and take the higher income at the age of 70. That is a huge, huge deal. Now, you need to do some careful Social Security planning. You need to look at his earnings record. So, for example, pull his earnings record and look and see, you know, was he not making much money in the beginning such that his higher income now could dramatically affect uh, the earnings record, which, which drives a number that's called his primary insurance amount, which is what all of these numbers are calculated based upon. You want to look and see what is his actual scenario. Now, at the end of the day, if he just wants to, wants to retire and he just says, I'm done at 
60, I've done it 61, 62, or whatever, um, he can do that. It just really dooms your mom. And that's the big deal in this situation is you got you to gotta think about your mom. Uh, and so she needs to do the same, same benefit as, as well. So the best investment they're going to make is going to be in Social Security keeping on working. Now, is this really so bad? Well, if he's working, if they're working jobs they hate, then use it as an opportunity to quit working jobs they hate and go work jobs they love, but still keep working. Because the other thing is that if you can eliminate the need on that portfolio of the $150,000 for another 10 years or so, that could give them a massive amount of time to actually save some money, so to establish a lifestyle. So think about what their lifestyle planning would be. Invest you and invest in them. Invest into doing some good Social Security planning. Uh, the best book that I've found so far of the books that I've looked at is a book entitled Social Security Strategies by William Reichenstein and William Meyer. I'll put a link in the show notes. This is the best one that I've been able to find so far, which will help you to actually like look through their situation. And Social Security planning is tough because it's so detailed. And But there are a bunch of strategies that you can do depending on whether his record is higher, whether her record is higher, whether they're comparable, dramatically disproportionate, things like that to try to figure out what the, the best uh, timing is. But my bet is that it's going to be better for him to defer to 70 um, if he can. And And so I would say start with... Uh, start with uh, a scenario where uh, where they're actually going to keep on working and just have him get a job that he loves, uh, which I'll come to in just a second. Now, let's say he doesn't want to do any of that, and he says, "Joshua, you know, I'm going to retire. By golly, I deserve it. I'm going to. I'm done. You know, I got to. I got to retire." Well, you can't afford it, okay? But the only way that you're going to be able to afford it is if you can live on Social Security at a diminished number. And also, if we can turn that $150,000 into something useful. So you got to, we have to turn it into income. And when we're turning it into income, in their scenario, that's going to mean either – that's going to mean we need a higher amount of actual, like, predictable income. Uh, so – you can't. We can't just live off of it. When we're right on the on the cusp of being able to survive versus not, we can't just toss it all into a portfolio of mutual funds and pull money off of it because we're so near the the wire that if we get a twenty percent correction in the portfolio, they're doomed. We just can't afford to take that risk. Uh, it we can't take the risk. So. Uh, if you if they had lots of money, then okay, yeah, we can toss it into mutual funds. We'll just pull back. We, we got plenty of money, but they're going to be right at the poverty line basically, so they can't take the risk. So they've got to do it into something that's going to be a little bit better for them. Now, if your dad is into hunting and fishing and gardening, which is what their hobbies are, maybe he's somewhat handy. I would say go take it and buy a duplex or a triplex. Um, <clears throat> Maybe if they can buy a duplex and they live in one unit, they can turn the other unit into uh, some sort of rental income and put that thing on a long-term fixed-rate mortgage, uh, to, and which they could cover off their Social Security. And then as long as they keep the other unit rented out, then, then maybe that'll give them uh, you know some extra cushion of the income and put a minimal down payment onto it so they don't have a bunch of equity tied up in the house uh, would be what I would look for. Or maybe they can, <clears throat> with that money, Excuse me. They can buy uh, a couple of rental houses in Texas. I mean, the things are pretty cheap in Texas, depending on what part, or Louisiana probably too. Maybe they can buy a couple of rental houses that he can manage for his part-time job. And with him managing the rental houses for his part-time job, he gets out of you know the job of working for the man that he's, he's got to retire from. Uh, and he can then maybe they can rent uh, you know a mobile home or something like that where they can keep their expenses really low. Uh, but 
I mean, the best way to handle this is really to think about don't you know flip flip the tail on its head because with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of income, excuse me, with one hundred fifty thousand dollars of equity and social security. The only answer is if they can live on half of what Social Security pays them so that they're okay if mom is in that scenario. Or if you've got deep enough pockets to help them out and you guys have committed as part of your family unit, hey, if, if you die, dad, you know, we'll take care of mom, we'll sell things and, and kind of move on. And and that's perfectly fine too. I'm, I'm kind of giving you the answers that don't incorporate those those outside scenarios. But you've got to keep that money. They've got to keep that money in reserve just in case of normal scenarios. Um, the the vast majority – here are the last two things, and I, I know I've gone on a long time on the question, but here are the last two things. If they retired now, what are they going to do for health insurance coverage? They will impoverish themselves utterly trying to get to Medicare um, if they retire early. Uh, so they're going to impoverish themselves when they're already impoverished. Uh, and B, the other thing is that the majority of retirees underestimate the cost of, of, of medical expenses in retirement. So if they only have the $150,000, they, they, they almost can't even take the, the plan of, uh, of, of retiring because they, and they can't invest the money practically because they need the money for, for medical expenses. Uh, I mean, do the research on these, the cost of medical expenses, it's dramatically higher than many people um, expect. Uh, and then with long-term care, they can't afford long-term care insurance because they don't have any money, but yet they'll be wiped out if they have long-term care insurance. So I hope that that uh, – <laughs> I'm not sure if this answer is useful or not, but in summary, as I move on to the next question <clears> – <throat> excuse me. In summary, I would say they can't retire, and the only thing they got to do is they got to sit down and they got to calculate it out for themselves. And um, they, they they can't afford to retire, but maybe he could, they can set up an ideal lifestyle. And if they can work for another ten years uh, and get to seventy for you know get out to age seventy, that eliminates a massive pool on that hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And then if they can just go set up a lifestyle for themselves that they love, you know, your dad and your mom can they can buy a, a, a triplex, put a nice down payment on it, uh, or, or put a, a da- minimal down payment on it. Maybe they can get good financing on it, buy a duplex or triplex, rent out two one or two of the other units so they have some income. Your dad loves to hunt and fish so he can figure out and you know get some part-time work as a hunting guide or a fishing guide or maybe he can create custom cabinetry and then your mom loves to garden so they can subsidize their their grocery costs with her gardening and she could sell organic produce out of the backyard uh, uh, or, or maybe they can get you know part-time jobs that give them enough. Like these are the scenarios where they need to to actually go. And this is the reality of the average American of their age, the baby boomers. That's what I'm saying. Go look at AARP and you'll see that there's been a major change in their literature even because uh, of how to uh, – the average person can't retire in the sense that has been held out. Uh, You you can't expose yourself to just um, Social Security. I mean Social Security is doomed anyway and – is it doomed during their lifetime? I don't know. Probably not. I don't think so. But, uh, but yeah, there's my answer. <laughs> I have no idea if it was useful or not. So next question, voicemail from Mark. Let's see here. Hey, Josh. Thanks very much for your uh, podcast, mate. I'm really enjoying them. Uh, Mark here from uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, just got one question in relation to insurance. Uh, your thoughts, um, let's say uh, you can afford to cover yourself for life insurance, uh, you can uh, afford to cover yourself for uh, TPD and uh, also income protection, 
but you're financially independent. Question is, uh, is it a good investment to continue to insure those assets? That is the, the asset of being able to work and the asset of your life uh, compared to the cost of the, uh, the cover. I thought it was worth uh, sending you a question there. All right, all the best, mate. See ya. So this is a fun one. And Mark is from Australia. I didn't know what TPD was. I went and looked it up. And what TPD stands for is total and permanent disability. And so evidently, this is a separate type of, uh, of insurance in Australia. So you mentioned life insurance, total and permanent disability, and income protection. So usually, Mar- uh, Mark, in the US, we would include total and permanent disability as just a component of the disability income insurance policy. Uh, but maybe it sounds like you guys have them separate or just a separate feature. I read a couple of things online, but that's what TPD is for those who are listening. So is it a good investment to continue to insure assets when you don't, when you don't need to? So <clears throat> this is an interesting question. A lot of people disagree on this, and I'll tell you how I would say is that, as always, <laughs> it depends on the costs and depends on the benefits, depends on the alternative use of the dollar, and it depends on, you know, frankly, any inside knowledge that you may have as to your personal risks and depends on the cost. Uh, so insurance is always generally always going to be properly priced by the insurance company. Depending on the type of insurance, it's basically always going to be properly priced. So with insurance, there's a difference between um, the emotion of it and then the logic of it. So if you say, Joshua, I'm self-insured, I could comfortably, you know, I could I could have uh, uh, a uh, a level of income for myself and for my family that would be enough to support myself. And if I died, you know, my family is financially independent. So do I? Do I need the insurance? Well, in that situation, no. Uh, and you may want to go ahead and drop it uh, if you don't need it anymore, uh, just simply because you, you don't need it. But the people, different people, have different variations of that number. So let's say, for example, if I have a disability insurance contract that I own, and I do, uh, so if I own a policy and I have just enough money to make my family, uh, you know, I could, we could just barely eke it out if I were disabled. I'm technically self-insured. Then, but the policy premium is just not that big a deal. I'm used to paying for it. Well, I'm probably going to keep it because it's going to make me feel better. I have more life insurance than I need just because I think it's pretty cheap and it makes me feel better. Now, cheap, you know, is is it cheap in the relative sense relative to my budget or is it cheap in the absolute sense, meaning this is a mispriced product in the insurance market? The the insurance, life insurance that I have, the amount of it is not cheap. You know, I have two and a half million dollars of life insurance. It's not cheap from the perspective of the insurance company. It's perfectly priced. But it's cheap to me because it's a very small number in my budget, and it makes me feel good to own it. I like knowing that if I died today, the fortune of my family is assured and insured, uh, that no matter what happens, I've got the money there. Now, let's say I had $2.5 million bucks in the bank. Would I still keep the $2.5 million of life insurance? Well, right now, my $2.5 million of life insurance costs me, what, it's under 100 bucks a month um, for the, if it were all in term. It's not all in term. But if it were all in term, it'd be under 100 bucks a month. If I have $2.5 million, do I still feel good having the $2.5 million of of coverage for 100 bucks a month? I do. And I find that many people, even once they get to the point that they're technically self-insured, they could actually cover the cost, they still will keep their insurance because the premiums are, are pretty cheap. And uh, 
so and it makes them feel good. It makes my wife feel good knowing that I have the two and a half million bucks of coverage and makes me feel good too, knowing that it's it's assured. So I can't you can't answer that in a technical perspective of is it a good investment in that sense because uh, it's not it's probably just a pure cost most insurance is pure cost there's no investment you know reaction but it's just a pure cost now you may know something about your actual risks so this has happened for example and I don't and I don't know anything about how insur- the Australian insurance market works but in the U S. A lot of times you could do things like this. Uh, I have a bunch of term life insurance, and when I got it all, I got the best rates and without any riders, no no flat extras, which is, which is what is known in the insurance business. It's just it's, it's cheap insurance. Now, when I got it, I didn't have any dangerous hobbies, and I had no specific plans to start any dangerous hobbies that are going to increase the cost of my insurance. I don't plan to jump out of airplanes. I don't plan to do any of those things. But in the back of my mind, I always know that – uh, you know what? I, it would be fun to learn how to fly airplanes someday. Uh, it really would be. And I know people who are pilots. I have people in my family who are pilots. I have a brother-in-law who is a flight instructor who could teach me how to fly airplanes. And I don't have any plans to actually do it. I don't not signed up for pilot's lessons. It's been years since I bought the insurance. So I could in full faith and, and, and truthfulness answer the, the, the questionnaire that no, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a pilot's license and I don't inflend to tend to get a pilot's license. Uh, in the next two years, what, however it's worded on the application. I can answer that honestly and truthfully, no. And a few years have passed. But I know in the back of my mind, you know what, someday I might like to get a pilot's license. Well, in that scenario, it's less likely for me to be willing to drop the, uh, for me to be willing to drop my uh, insurance coverage. Because I know that the day I sign up for for flying lessons, uh, let's see, is it a, I think it's a $5 flat extra. Uh, for every thousand dollars of insurance, so what that means is, uh, if I had a uh, five bucks per year of extra premium for every thousand dollars of life insurance coverage that I own the day I sign up for flying lessons, so in that scenario, that would be a good investment for me to keep the insurance because I can have it for longer at the lower premium. So, uh, if I ha- if you know something about that, another example would be, let's say that you come from. A very safe job occupation in the U.S. with disability income insurance, individual disability policy. Let's say you're an attorney or you're an accountant. So you go ahead and you load up on disability income insurance. Uh, and I would do something like this, me personally, given my personal structure. So if I loaded up on – I were working as a, a, an attorney. I loaded up on disability income insurance, personally owned. And then I've had it for five, ten years. I've saved a bunch of money. I've become financially independent. Well, because I know what's written in the contract, if I went and started – a farm or I went and started you know, riding bucking broncos for a living, I would keep that disability insurance contract uh, because mo- many of the contracts, at least the contracts I used to sell, their definition of disability was whatever you're doing at the time of injury. But you don't have to tell that you don't have to change your premium rate for individually owned disability insurance after you leave. So if you retired from being an attorney and went and worked on a farm, I would say that's a good investment to have it because you're far more likely to get injured on the farm and be unable to farm than you were as an attorney. 
attorney, but you have a mispriced policy at that point in time. So if you know something about your risk, about your personal risk, then you can uh, you're basically practicing what's known as adverse selection against the insurance company. Now that's the way the insurance contracts are written. There's nothing wrong with it. That's technically how they're written. The insurance company would not approve you if you had worked in that if you had started from that perspective as a farmer. They wouldn't have approved you the same rate. But since you already have that rate, then you can go ahead and do it. So if you have a scenario like that that you can exploit, uh, then I would look at that. Um, the what you're probably asking is more technically, is this a good use of the dollar? So here's would be the question. Uh, another way to answer it. Uh, let's just start with zero-based thinking. And let's just uh, pretend that we don't have the policy. And we're going to say, would I go out and buy this policy if I had the opportunity? Well, that's where you're going to get into the financial return and the financial reward. So uh, the best example here would probably be life insurance, uh, the example that many people would face. Okay, I'm 45 years old. I don't need technically need the life insurance anymore, but I own the policy. Uh, is this a good use of the dollar? Well, if it's term life insurance, insurance, then that meaning it's temporary, it's for a specific amount of time, and it's going to go away, then the question is just how much is a cost and, and do I feel good having it, basically? Uh, it's negligible cost, sure, I'll go ahead and buy it. And, and I don't understand why more people don't do that. When you can buy at 50 years old, you can buy a 10-year level term policy for what? A million bucks for, I don't know, 50 bucks a month probably, 70 bucks a month, something like that. Uh, it's just it's, it, To me, it's a no-brainer. If you have money, why, why wouldn't I want to have that? Do I need it? No, but it's, it's a negligible, it's a rounding error in my budget, and it makes me feel good to have the extra million bucks in case a portfolio correction or something like that. If you're talking a policy with a much, more bigger, with a much bigger price tag, so you're considering buying a whole life policy, a million bucks, well, now you've got to compare it properly to what the alternative use of the dollar is. And that's where it very much depends on the policy. And it very much depends on what your investment options are. It very much depends on the internal price of the contract inside the actual performance of the underlying investment contract. Are we talking about a policy that's tied to what's known as a variable policy where it's tied to the performance of an investment? Uh, Are we talking about a policy that is tied to uh, a fixed account? Uh, what's the tax ramifications? So in the United States, we have um, the you know life insurance policies. The death benefit is never income taxable, uh, and uh, the the death benefit is never income taxable. The the cash values can be pulled out depending on how you pull them out. On um, sometimes on a tax favorable basis, uh, this can be useful for estate planning. You would have to look at what are you actually guaranteeing. And in the next question, actually. Oh, we're not going to have time today. Uh, in the next question, I was going to answer that and set, talk about how I would use it. So uh, the answer, because we're going to wrap up with this question, I'm going to stick 58 minutes into the show. Uh, the answer would, you, you needed to compare it to what your alternative use is. And in general with life insurance, you're probably going to be using this as a, an assuring technique to guarantee a certain number. So you may be using it to guarantee a si- certain size of an inheritance for your family members, and you're also going to be gar- you're going to be comparing it against what your alternative investment would be, and you're very much going to be considering income tax and estate tax uh, ramifications. That's a kind of a general answer. Uh, to the question, you can you can figure it out specifically. I don't know what Australian law is in the U.S. Though we could very easily figure it out. A million dollars of insurance is going to cost you a thousand dollars a month for a whole life policy. Here's what we project your 
date of death is going to be, and uh, here's what we project is going to be the performance of the contract. Here's what the internal expenses are. If we compare them to this mutual fund, to this uh, portfolio of CDs, to this portfolio of bonds, to this real estate portfolio, the policy needs to serve a use. And so is it a good investment? It could be. Um, it could also be a really, really bad financial move, uh, and it's uh, very difficult. Uh, it's not difficult, but it's hard to answer the question without specifics. These types of questions, and I'm going to quit there for today. I'm at 57 minutes in. But these types of questions, uh, <laughs> I hope you can appreciate how I answer them, but the reality is you have to look at an individual scenario. It is massively different if you're saying, you know, and I'm making these this up, Mark, because you didn't say, but it's massively different if you're 50 years old and you just got enough money to where you're financially independent and you're asking me, should I buy a whole life policy, you know, as a good, good amount of money? Well, that'd be hard to answer. But if you have lots of money and you have a tax bill due at death and you're trying to make sure that you fund that tax bill and you can fund it easily out of uh, life insurance and your downside is the premium risk, but you have maybe another pot of money that is a dramatic upside. I mean, there's all different ways to position the policy mentally to where it makes a lot of sense. People make the mistake a lot of times of saying it's all about absolute rate of return. But the problem with absolute rate of return is when does that return come in? Uh, which was going to be the next question from Lane. He was asking, he says, you know, I'm going to start withdrawing money from my retirement funds. I've tired to talk about the 4% rule, and but I want to leave 50% behind. Well, uh, uh, how would I figure that number out over a twenty-year uh, over a twenty-year distribution? And it's very simple to figure out if we know the exact rates of return, but we don't know the exact rates of return. And the highest, uh, generally, the highest performing, the highest returning asset bases are going to be uh, the most volatile. So this is where you get to the realm of the difference between investment planning and financial planning is that it's very easy to give a generalized investment scenario saying always invest in the highest performing uh, asset class and uh, always get you know get the maximum total rate of return because over every 10 year period in you know the US stock market history the the the, the value is up yes that is true so that works really well for me at 30 years old but that doesn't work so well for what was his name um uh, Justin's parents who are 60 you know they can't just put their $150,000 in the stock market and when they're requiring from that 1500 or $2000 or $3000 a month to face their living expenses they can't just you know toss the money in there and it's all going to be hunky dory because they need the money now so they get needing a distribution strategy now if they had a million 5 then yeah <laughs> No big deal. The volatility is, is, is less important. So what you see is the difference between general concepts and actually applying them at a, uh, at a local level and at a, actually at a, at a personalized level. So hope you guys enjoy that. I got through three questions, and I love doing these. And <laughs> uh, I got to go back and listen to today's show, and, and hopefully I dealt with things at an appropriate length. Um, the primary value is me not answering the question, but me telling you how to do it. And I've got you know another five good ones lined up here for you guys, but there'll be another chance. Um, thank you so much for being here for today. Make sure this weekend to go and check out uh, go and check out some of those other shows uh, that I mentioned, the other interviews, and um, cutting things off here, trying to really get closer to that one-hour um, time limit to help many of you guys, you know, sitting down listening to a three-hour show is, is um, 
not as, as easy for some of you. Next week, I am excited. On Monday, I am going to... Let's see. Where's my schedule? Monday, I think I'm going to walk through some of my ideas for a better uh, high school education experience. On Tuesday, I am going to launch a voluntary membership program, which I hope that some of you will consider joining. I'll lay out the history of the show. I'll lay out all the different options that I've considered. And I'll tell you why I've cho- I'm choosing to do things the way that I am choosing. And if, if you guys are enjoying the show, let me know. I will be glad to uh, have you as members to support the show financially. That would be cool. Uh, would really make a diff- difference for me. On Wednesday, I am going to release, uh, probably I have planned right now, do a technical college financial planning, 529s, uh, ESAs, blah, 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 all the technical stuff, you know, Hope Grants, Pell Grants. We'll see how much I can fit into one day's show. Um, uh, I may supersede that with a show on, but we'll see. And then Thursday, I think I'm going to release an interview that I did with James Wesley Rawls, uh, a uh, he's a hardcore survivalist, uh, where he publishes the survival blog. And we're going to talk about that, talk about precious metals a little bit. I think that'll be interesting to you. Uh, one thank you uh, here for a review from Jay Rosen, updated review. This podcast is amazing. The FAQ on whether to pay down a mortgage or invest was incredibly helpful and gave me actionable information. I'm in the middle of deciding whether to refinance with a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, and the guidance from this episode was incredibly useful in helping me think about the opportunity cost of choosing a 15-year mortgage. Couldn't have come at a better time. Once again, this podcast has helped me avoid a financial mistake that could have had significant repercussions. Detailed and thorough podcast perspectives are nuanced and informed. Thank you, dude. Thanks for the reviews. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.